we're recording. I'm Steve Fierro. This is From Wall Street to Awakening. My guest today is Gregory Burns, a man of incomparable accomplishment who was stricken with polio at the age of five. Greg was born and raised in California and moved to Taiwan at the age of 26 in 1984 and has lived in Asia ever since, more recently living between California and Singapore when not traveling. Greg is an accomplished and acclaimed artist that despite having no motor function in his legs, has trekked, traveled, and sailed around the globe, climbed mountains, won multiple gold swimming medals in three Paralympic games, and holds five world records as a result. He's completed three Ironman competitions, is a public speaker, and has done a TEDx talk, is an author, teacher, and an inspiration to all, and a close friend of mine for 25 years. Greg is always on the go and hard to keep up with, so it's nice to have him here now. Greg, thanks for taking the time to be here. Hey, Steve, always, always a pleasure. It's, uh, we go way back, so it's, uh, it's great to, to connect with you today. It's kind of cool we're doing this, you know? It's like, yeah. would have never thought we'd be uh, talking like this, but we've had some pretty cool talks, right? So We, we yeah. have. Yeah, I was, I was listening to your recent TED, uh, well, it wasn't recent, but your TEDx talk, and um, I was, you're, in it, you mentioned the way your mother perhaps showed tough love and instilling a sense of unassisted and independent living in when you were just five and learning to cope with crutches. So I've known you all my life. I've known you for 25 years, which is half my life. And right. I didn't know this. So I, I found your mom's courage and strength and influence incredible. I mean, can you tell us about this and perhaps, you know, how this and other things your mom has done has helped you, you know, have a, like a can-do, get-it-done attitude? Yeah, yeah I really, um, my mother and father um, were very, very powerful influences in my life, as you can imagine. I, I, I always tell this story that is, I think, indicative of, of that, uh, uh, of not kind of taking the, the doubts and the uh, preconceptions of others too seriously. And what I mean by that is uh, not accepting the status quo. So when I was, uh, I got polio, actually I got polio when I was a year old and I started to learn to walk with crutches and braces. I guess I was four or something like that. And by the time I was five, it was time to go to school. So they, in, in the old days, you know, when um, they had schools for people with disabilities and uh, it was pretty much for all disabilities as far as I can tell. I mean, I was only five years old, so I don't remember exactly, but I, re I do vaguely remember going into this school where I was going to attend. I was going to attend this special school for children with special needs. And I'll, I was only five, but I remember being in that room, in that school, and just feeling I didn't belong there. I, I, and I didn't, it didn't feel right. So somehow communicate that to my folks and they said, okay, well, let's, let's try to take you to uh, the regular school or people like yourself, Steve, without disabilities. Um, and so we went to that school and, uh, you know, we met the principal and he was very nice and all that. And, and he said, you know, Mrs. Burns, we really like your son, Gregory. We'd love to have him as a student. But unfortunately, our school has uh, two flights of stairs and there's no way that, uh, you know, there's no one to carry Gregory up and down the stairs to go to classes. Um, and at that point, I couldn't use the stairs. I didn't know how to climb stairs. So, so they said, sorry, he can't go to school. So my mother, um, being a bit stubborn, as she always has been, which I think has helped me, uh, she, you know, she insisted. She said, well, listen, if he can do the stairs, can he go to school? And he, he agreed to that. So my father and his friend built a wooden staircase in my backyard. We, we were living in Washington, D.C., outside Washington, D.C., um, and built the stairs in my backyard. And I spent the summer 
practicing, if you will, you know, going up and down the stairs. And then I, you know, when school started, I went to to prove myself, if you would, to the principal and showed him that I could climb the stairs. And I went to that school. And as a result, I went to a regular school or I was mainstreamed. There's a word called mainstreaming. I was mainstreamed into society, if you will, instead of marginalized and kept with a group of, you know, special needs students. And, uh, you know, I think that made all the difference in the world. I mean, I, I was, I would have been the only disabled kid in the school. In most of my schools growing up, I was the only, only disabled kid, um, which, you know, that's another subject altogether, like being a, a little like the odd man out. Um, but uh, yeah, I think my mother's attitude and, and can do and, you know, will do. And uh, another example of, and it was when we used to go uh, at the same age, five years old, I'm trying to learn how to walk. And so I used to go to shopping with my mom and, you know, I'd be in the shopping mall and shopping center, maybe the super giant or whatever it was at the time. And, um, you know, I usually, I, I would fall down because I wasn't good yet at walking. So, um, and, and then my mother would, um, she would stand by and watch me get myself up instead of, you know, lifting me up or writing me, if you will. And I think it must have been really hard for her because back then, you know, the conventional wisdom, if you would, would have been to, you know, to pick, pick the little boy up, be, you know, why are you, how, how, you know, these other women or other shoppers in the store would look at her and think probably poorly of her because they would have expected her to, you know, to pick me up. and by not picking me up, that made all the difference because, you know, if she'd been picking, she started picking me up at that age and just kept picking me up for the rest of my life. I mean, where would I be? I wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be on this talk. So uh, again, uh, I don't, I, you call it tough love or whatever you want to call that, but it was, it was, you know, allowing me to help myself. And, and I think that attitude has gone through my life. And, yeah. I mean, that's incredible foresight on your mom. There's uh... yeah because I've always known you as Greg. I mean, and like, I can barely keep up with you. I mean, it's like ridiculous. So. Um, what was your but, dog? I had a hard time keeping up. With. <laughs> yeah. But you know, while we're on that with your mom who, who instilled in you, you you're going to have to do things for yourself one day. So you might as well learn now. Right. Um, there's, I, I read, I read uh, Richard Branson's book, losing my virginity and like almost in the opening chapter, he mentions a story where his mother, when he was five, let him, they were in the car, she let him outside the car a mile away from home and said, find your way home and left. Wow. And, you know, most, that would be child abuse today, but he, he can't thank his mother enough for instilling in him, you know, that can-do attitude. Exactly. But, you know, that, I think that is it. And, um, you know, we, we, we've all, we're all challenged. We're all, you know, we all have stuff we can and can't do or, or, or whatever. And, um, but I think those lessons that we learn early on kind of set the stage. Um, you know, and, and I think we can only be grateful for those kind of the tougher lessons that we learned. Otherwise, you know, we, we may not, we may not actualize our potential if we're, if we're coddled, if you, if you will. And, yeah. Uh, understandably, I mean, children with disabilities, this is a, this is a tough one. Uh, who teaches parents? You know, you, you think of my folks, you know, they were in their 20s or early 30s when they got, you know, we were in Jerusalem. I got polio. When I was a year old. My, my dad was his first job overseas. And here we were, you know, my brother and I in Jerusalem with my mother and father. And I get, I get polio and he's got to work. And, but no, we got to go back to America. There's no, you know, we need medical attention. And, you know, think about this, you know, 
you know, you're young, they're young and you, you don't have get to test drive this. It's not like there's a, you know, the cliff notes on what do you do if you're overseas and your, your son comes down with polio and you have to go back to America and there's, you know, there's no, there's no manual on, on how to deal. And, and, you know, you just realize that, gosh, uh, you know, they, they, they took the ball and ran with it the best they could. And I think that's, uh, you know, we, we, we need, well, we all learn to adapt, don't we? And yeah. I think that I really was fortunate that, you know, they did a really good job um, in some ways, you know, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. So I'm a lazy bugger when it comes to washing. <laughs> and, yeah, you know. but, well, my, my mom okay. taught me how to do laundry at an early age. So that like, you know, no, no lie. I mean, my mom was smart like that, you know, which I'm actually grateful for today because I do, I've been doing my own laundry since I was like, you know, nine years old. But, but um, that's just, I was so moved by that because like, like you said, the courage of your mother to stand over you and wait till you got up in the, in the middle of a supermarket and you're five. uh, That took a lot of wherewithal on her. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, the, you're, you're dealing with other people's, you know, fears and and doubts. And, um, you know, we're all social people, we we do listen or look to others to for, you know, for indications of if we're doing the right or wrong thing. And, you know, at that time, she would have had to stand up for what she knew was right, um, which would not have been, you know, what would have been the norm those days, because, you know, what do you do with a kid with a disability, any kind of disability? I mean, it's, it's tough on parents, you know, and wow. you guys just and the family too. You know, my brothers and sisters had to, you know, you know that, that was another thing. I'm sure my older brother, he was two years older. Suddenly, I come down with polio. I would guess, and I could be wrong here, but you know, um, I haven't talked with him extensively about this. But I would imagine that, you know, suddenly here here comes Gregory. First of all, he's got a little brother, so you go from being the only child to having now a second child. But then. To, you know, a year later, he becomes such a center of attention because because of this disease. And, you know, let's try to help him. Let's try to fix him. And I, you know, I imagine there would be some tension for my brother, like, well, wait a minute, what about me? And um, so, again, family structures and, and how we, you know, we we exist in an ecosystem of, you will, a family ecosystem and then a, a, a greater society. Um, you know, we are not we're, we're not silos. Yeah, I mean, it's I could imagine your brother sabotaging your crutches here and there, you know, like <laughs> that little stinker. <laughs> Fair enough. And I'm sure I deserved it. I mean, I, I met, probably could get, yeah. Yeah. I've met your I, brother. I, there's no way he, there's no way he's capable of doing that. So <laughs> well, that's my younger brother. My uh, older brother, maybe, yeah. I don't okay. know. But he was there. I had good I have very good siblings. We all yeah. we still get along very well. We're we're there for each other. So, I mean, we could talk forever about just your dad traveling and you traveling, but um, obviously, how did you make this transition to, uh, I guess, what, what, what was the thing that brought you to Asia when you were, what, 26 years old? 26, yeah. Well, you know, the, I think the deeper question you're, you're getting at is what, what made me want to move or what... You know, I've, 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 I lived, you know, with my family, I lived 10 years in Europe and 10 years in America. My first 20 years, it was split between Europe and America, um, more or less. And, um, and I think that I, early on, I had a passion or a, a desire to explore, to move from A to B. And I think part of that movement, or the, what I call mobility, if you will, is, is, is not based on, but is affected or was affected by 
my disability. I mean, when I was five years old, I, my doctor, who my parents used to call Dr. Stoneface Adams because he had a, you know, he had, had the bedside manner of a, a bedpan, but he was, <laughs> you know, he was, he was, again, tough love. He said, I'll never forget it. First, one of the first things I rem remember him saying, you know, here, I'm this little kid with little crutches and braces. He, he looks at, I look up and he says, first of all, you're never going to walk again. Okay, thanks. Got that. And, and second, don't ever get fat. The logic there was, you know, if you get fat, you're going to have to carry that weight around. That's not good for you. So stay, you know, stay svelte, stay, you know, for your own mobility, for your own good. And, um, and I think that that, you know, again, good information for a five-year-old. But as a result, I think the other thing was, you know, people, again, didn't expect me to walk distances or, or to move that much. And, and even to this day, you know, I meet people or I travel, especially in Asia. When I remember first coming to Asia, like Asians weren't used to seeing people with disabilities ambulating or getting around. I mean, there's a, there's much more awareness in Europe and America, let's just say, than in Asia for people with disabilities. So when I got to Asia in 84, at the age of 26, um, it was like, everybody was saying, oh, take it easy, have a rest, sit down, don't, you know, there, there was this mentality that you, and, and, and I think I've had that all my entire life, but it was very obvious when I get to Asia that society doesn't expect a lot of people, doesn't expect, expect a lot of people with disabilities for one. I think that's a generic, um, mm. uh, and at the same time, don't, don't expect us to be that mobile. Don't expect us to, you know, to climb mountains, to hop, you know, trains, uh, you know, um, to, to just to, ride to, to get out. Yeah, ride scooters, skateboards, you name it, you know, rock climb, surf, uh, you know, ski, sit down ski, you know, scuba diving, you know. Anyway, so I think as a kid growing up with people not in, in a way telling me, oh, you can't do that. So society will have this blanket thing like people with disabilities don't do this or you can't do that or don't expect you to do that. And I think part of me is like, well, I'll show you. You know, yeah, I can do that. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. And I think that, you know, a, a bit of that, you know, push back uh, was part, you know, informed some of my uh, mentality. Um, but so at the same time, this, you know, wanting to move, wanting to be mobile, and also wanting to explore and adventure and see the world. And um, I had, I remember, remember Encyclopedia Britannica's, you know, when yeah. we were kids, before pre-internet. That was you know, Google. It, yeah, it was exactly. That was the Google of the day. And I'll never forget that we had this series, you know, it was in our, in our library, if you will, we had these books. And there was a picture there of, I don't know if it was the Ming dynasty, the Song dynasty, but anyway, some of, one of the dynasties in China, and there was a, a painting of these people in the, in the royal court, you know, and they had their headdress on, their, their robes, they had all this, you know, it, it was like, wow, and here I was in America, and this was China, and I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. And I, I'll never forget, there's a picture of this guy and he's holding his hands, like looking very Zen, you know, and I'm, and, and from that, not from that moment, but I think that was my first kind of foray or connection with, let's just say Asia, because, you know, in the West, we, Asia is a big, you know, is it, as you come out here, you realize, well, let's see, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Taiwanese, Cambodian, Laotians, they're very different, right? When, you know, in the West, we kind of have this blanket. And so I think I, my, my yeah. taste for Asia started when I was a kid, like then, and my interest, or, and I remember when I lived in California, before I went to Asia, I used to go down to Chinatown and just wander through the stores, just to look at stuff on the shelves, and, you know, 
what's that? Wow, that's, that's, that smells funny. What's that? You eat yeah. that? Oh, you don't know. You, you know, you clean your shoes with that? What do you do with this stuff? <laughs> anyway, so it was my, you know, just kind of this searching and wanting yeah. to know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so to me, like, you, you have always been so close to nature. You're, like, been all over Tibet to Ladakh. You've done, like, you've lived three lives already. So let's face it. Um, it's, and I've always felt like you've lived this kind of on, you know, this purposeful, on purpose sort of life by faith, you know, mm-hmm. like, but I wonder, is it more a strive to achieve and prove, or is it, is it a life of faith and not being in fear and just knowing, I don't know what's around the corner, but I'm going to be okay. That would, you know, that's for sure. That, that, uh, I have a painting that I've called painted and I've used this line many times it's, and it's going without knowing all the answers. And my life has been pretty much that it's, you know, I left for Asia in 84 uh, with a plan, uh, a one year plan to study Chinese arts and calligraphy and painting and calligraphy in Taiwan. And I did that, uh, but that was the plan. That was the short term plan. Well, I didn't realize that, you know, 35 years later, I'd still be in Asia, you know, following that plan. And when I used to travel, when I traveled through, you know, China, Tibet, Nepal, India, and Pakistan for 16 months backpacking, you know, I never had a reservation. I would show up, I'd get on a train from someplace to somewhere and get off at another place. And, you know, then there'd be somebody's uncle's brother's sister telling me you should stay at my, my, my cousin's lawsman or my, you know, my bungalow here. So I just did a lot of just winging it. And, you know, in, in my life, I've done a lot of that. And um, that, that's kind of, it's exciting. And also sometimes you end up sleeping under a bridge or, you know, in the rain or in a train station. So, um, but it's, you know, that, that adventure, some spirit, I think, has been, uh, has driven me a lot and given me, yeah. you know, give me something to do. It's what an inspiration. Do? I mean, and that's what, that's why you, like, you lead a life of synchronicity because you meet well, people. and. I, yeah, I do. And, and every once in a while, I grok into that idea of synchronicity. Like, you know, if you let go, um, the universe will come to you. And I, I think I'm still many times driven to, you know, achieve, like you said. And, I'm, you know, I, now I'm kind of, as I'm getting older and trying to let go of that kind of drive thing and to say, you know, where, where do I need to be? Or where can I be a best value? Where can, you know, if it's talking to Steve on a, on a podcast, that's, that's a good place to be. And, and I think you said purposefulness. And so I, I think I, I, I realized very early on that I had, I was a jack of all trades and a master of none. So mm. I, I was, you know, I could, I did lots of different sports. I competed in lots of sports. Um, I painted and I drew and I, you know, I wasn't a great, I've been a great student. I was, a, you know, I was a B, I was a 3.0. If I was, I was, and I was happy with that. That was cool. Yeah. So, but the rest of it was, you know, and, and I realized I could do a lot of different things, but nothing, I wasn't great at anything. And then when I was in my early 20s, like around the time I started going, when I went to Asia, early to mid 20s, I thought, you know, what, I got to pick something or I got to, you know, I got to focus on something. Otherwise, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to dribble my life away and I'm not going to be good at anything. So I just, I focused on, for lack of anything else, swimming and painting. So those were kind of my, my, I would call my, my backbones, my core, you know, backbones that, that I wrapped the rest of my life around, um, for better, or for worse. Those were what I chose. And cause I could swim and I, you know, I set world records in swimming and I could paint and people liked my art and I sold some paintings and, you know, so, and then I thought, well, wait a minute, how could I, 
how could I craft those things into, you know, I, I, I need to pay the rent somehow. I'm going to need to put food on the table. How do I do that? And, you know, I, I just thought, well, wouldn't that be, you know, in a way it was not a challenge, but it was like, that would be cool if I could, if I could do something meaningful. So to me, my swimming was important because it made me stronger. It made me healthier. And when I was stronger and healthier, I'm a better person and I'm going to affect the world in a better way. So that was part of being sporty, if you will. And then the art part was my art has always been, um, it's been a two far part thing. It's, it was always my counselor as was swimming, but you know, I've, I've suffered depression. I'm sure like everybody in this world sure. don't, you know, I don't think any of us get out of here. Um, I once said, you know, Andy Warhol once said, you know, we, famously, you all get 15 minutes of fame. And I would argue that's true. And I would also say we always get, we all, we all get 15 minutes of depression, you know, at least. So, <laughs> so um, you know, my, yeah, at least. Way, yeah. yeah. And how, how much per day, but you know, the way I used to deal with it was I would swim or I would draw and paint. So those were kind of my focuser meditators. Uh, they were, they were my counselor. I never went to, you know, lay on the couch kind of counseling that way but this was my version of therapy and that so i was self-medicating through art and sports and those things you know when when the wheels fell off the cart as they did many times and as they continue to do i have these two backstops which i can re i can re retreat to if you will now the the better thing instead of waiting till the wheels fall off the cart and then doing something about it. The better thing that I've found over the years to, to have a, a slow burn, like a constant, like if I, if I just do some sports every day and if I do some art every day, okay, just keep it going, keep it going. I found that then I'm happier. I'm more, um, I, I don't feel depressed. And so I'm, instead of, waiting till every so you got to make a huge change like oh, i gotta really do i'm so far down i gotta really claw my way out of this i'm finding it a little like a slow drip helps me keep an even keel so uh, you know i'm not in a medication and stuff like that but my medication is sports and art so my art and my sports were very meaningful for that for self-preservation if you even want to say that but then further I, I have a belief and, you know, for better, or for worse, if I'm full of myself or crap or whatever you want to say, but I believe in my art. I really, I have been doing art since I was five years old and that's a long time. And I think not to say I'm great at it, but I do think that somehow something through my art comes through me, which I think is a value. I, I think there's a message in it. There's a meaning to it that is not just for me, that has perhaps some validity or relevance or potential to help others as well. I mean, whether I give paintings away or sell paintings away or, or share paintings online or whatever. I mean, I think, so anyway, I believe in my art. I believe in the message, which, and I also would believe in my speaking. So I do art and I do, you know, motivational speaking. And um, I speak with thousands, hundreds or thousands of people at a time. And, and I'm also convinced that we all, at times in our lives connect with a universal consciousness that universal consciousness is is there for all of us and we all connect in different ways and and i connect through my sports and my art and i think also when i speak and um and because sometimes when i speak it's i i like i'll be asked a question or i'll come to something and and i kind of laid it lay myself down it's like okay i I'm not looking for the Gregory Burns ego answer to this. I'm, I'm kind of like saying, 
okay, universe, where's the, where's the answer to this? You know, what you asked me X and I've got, you know, a nanosecond or two or three, a few seconds to come up with some answer. And, and it's so funny because not all the time, but every once in a while I'll come up with something and it's like, Whoa, did I just say that? Where did that come from? And so I've always contended that I don't know all I know until I write it, paint it, or speak it. So it's this, and that's exciting to me because I come, stuff comes up that I, it's not that I'm not conscious of it. I guess I could do it. If I did a thesis on something, I might come up with something, but it's this, this uh, being prodded or being uh, not challenged, but given the, the, in a way, it's a challenge. Like, so, Greg, what would you say about this? And, you know, how would you, if, if this was a situation, what would you do? And, you know, I, I've, I, I haven't had children. You know, I've done camps with children. I've been a camp counselor. I've been a teacher and all that. But I've never had children. So why would someone ask me about raising children? I mean, it doesn't make much sense, does it, mm -hmm. if you think about it? Mm -hmm. And I would agree. And yet, I think I've it's possible that some things I've said to people about children has some relevance because again, I think there's that universal consciousness or that universal connection that we all have yep. and we all can at times tap into, which has answers for a, for a bigger whole, you know, so we're just conduits, if you will. I think that's a long winded answer to your question. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, there's like, that's what I mean. You're in alignment with nature and spirituality yet I've never even talked to you about where did it come from? Like, did you read books? Did you do ashrams in India? Like I, I've known you all a long time. What's all, it? All, all of the above. I mean, I was reading, um, Ram Dass, Christopher the Mill, when I was, you know, a teenager. And, um, there was a book, Hugh Prath notes to myself, you know, little, little words in a picture, and, um, you know, doc, Dr. Dyer, you know, I was, I was reading self-help books long before I, my first actually Zen koan moment, if you will, was I in, in college, my sophomore year in college, I was in California and I took communications one-on-one and the teacher was, was a visionary. Uh, he was really evolved and he, you know, he was surfing in Alaska. Uh, he was meditating on in ashrams and stuff like that. And, and, and he, it was the first time I, he talked about meditation and yoga and, and, uh, and, and so he, 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 I learned a lot from him about what I would call interpersonal or intrapersonal communications and stuff. And, but he got me on this track, I guess you would say is, uh, you know, California has a lot of, you know, it, it got soup to nuts and it, it's got, you know, vegetarianism and colonics and you name it, you can, you can get into a morass of self-help and, and spirituality and all that in California. And as an 18, 19 year old, I jumped right into it. And, and so I did, I, I embraced, you know, meditation. I embraced uh, um, retreats. I did silent retreats, went to Sri, you know, Sri Aurobindo ashram in India. I would, you know, I, I, I did a lot of searching and traveling and, you know, uh, you know, sitting in caves, if you will, in mountaintops, so to speak. And I, I used to go camping by myself when I was younger and, and literally go into the woods with or without a tent and just live there for a few days. Cause I thought that that would make me a stronger person or make me aware of wow. something. I'd learned something. I was bored as hell and I was lonely and miserable, but like, okay, this will make me talk. This is a good idea. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a Navy SEAL. I wasn't did you have bug spray. I mean, how did you, how did you ward off the ants? Oh, man, you know, I, 
So one time, uh, I went. I was. I graduated from college, and I thought, okay. I, I sheepishly told my mother. I said, you know, Ma, I've never been to the care. I think I want to go to the Caribbean. And I was expecting her to say, why? What's that for? What would you do? What's the point? You know. And, and no, yeah. she said, yeah, go. And it was like, serious? Go. Yeah, go. Really? Oh. So that's all I needed. So I went. I got a flight, one-way ticket to St. Croix or St. Thomas, uh, Virgin Islands. And I remember I went there and I, you know, I was too cheap to stay in hotels. So I would sleep under catamarans or in the, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the garden of some hotel. Um, anyway, I, I ended up- Wait, wait, wait. Meeting... You went to St. Martin with no hotel? Of course. I never- A tent? I never Did you have a tent with you? No, no. But so the how I fixed that was, in fact, uh, this is a funny story. So, so after a few days of, you know, sleeping under palm trees and stuff, I was sitting on a beach and I was sketching a palm tree, literally sketching a palm tree. And this guy walks up to me and he says, what can I see your sketch? And I said, here, he showed him my sketchbook. And, and he said, wow, that's cool. Come, come on over. This is my bar here on the beach. And this is my hotel here on the beach. Uh, we started, you know, we had a beer and he said, you know, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just traveling around sketching. And he said, well, you know, I, I need some artwork. Can I trade you a place to live and food for art? Wow. And I said, bingo. So that's what I call was my first artist in residency. <laughs> you know, I traded art for a roof over my head and food. And, you know, I had a silver flute. I was, I was playing my flute in my little bungalow. <laughs> I was very, you know, grasshopper. Yeah, grasshopper. That's, see, that, that's, that takes balls to go to St. Martin at a young age with nothing. I mean, and then look at what happens when you have the, you know, the courage to do that. The, the universe right. responds. Well, well, after that, so then I wanted, my idea was I wanted to sail around. It was St. Croix, St. Mar- John, St. Thomas, and St. Croix, so the American Virgin Islands. So I ended up going to the, to the, the, um, the boat harbor in St. Croix, and they had a little bulletin board there, you know, looking for crew or something like that. And somehow I met up with a family from Colorado. They had a 44-foot catch. So it was a husband and wife and two kids. And somehow I met with them and I said, you know, I'm looking to, to go sailing. Um, you know, and look at me I'm on crutches. Like, can you imagine? Like, think about this. This guy on crutches, crutches. And says, I, I, yeah, I want to, I want a crew. I'm going to like, okay, sure. What are you going to do? You know, well, I'd probably be very good pulling in ropes or something. I don't know. I didn't know squat about sailing and I'm not a great sailor for sure. Um, uh, anyway, they said, sure, come on, join us. So I joined this family on their boat for a week and sailed around St. John Sacred. It was great. It was lovely. And I, I would argue probably they took me because I was maybe a role model for their kids, you know, to just teach them about, well, you can do stuff even if you're on crutches yeah. and braces and, and, you know, and have a head of how hair. Old, which I how had. old were you at this time? Uh, 22, one, okay. 21 or 22. And so the funny, you were asking about, this all happened because you asked me about bug spray. So anyway, long story short is I, I, I'm on this boat for a week. And then finally, they dropped me off at St. John. And St. John is mostly a national park. And I, I got off at St. John. And I, for three days, I lived in the jungle um, uh, without a tent and eating coconuts for three days. I had a knife and I would cut the cushion. And I was literally, I had no tent and no bug spray. And for three days, I was, I was the smorgasbord for every mosquito and every no bug in that whole forest. And they, they ate me alive. And I was like just one huge welt of mosquito bites and, and bug bites. Interestingly, I, I think my body must have peaked or something. And after those three days in the jungle, 
when I, I finally came out and I, you know, I, I went, came back to civilization, it was one of those, again, my, one of these retreat ideas, let's, you know, leave society behind and, you know, find yourself in the jungle eating coconut. Anyway, so I finally came back and, and somehow after that point, I very rarely get mosquito bites anymore. I think my body kind of changed its alkaline or what, what it did. I, I'm no longer tasty to bugs. Amazing, you know. That's so awesome. That's it all it takes an immunity. Huh? It built up an immunity. mosquito immunity. Dude, that's just freaking incredible. It's funny, like all these years we've known each other, we've been hobnobbing and, you know, like normal people. And we don't, right. sometimes we don't get to these conversations, but I, right. we, we, you know, time flies. It's just ridiculous. Dude, we, yeah. I have to, you have to tell the story about the return of Marco Polo boat. And <laughs> so, because... Sure. Like, what part do you want? I don't, I don't like what, how old were you? What, how did you get there? It led to this, it led to that. And sort of your life's okay. been the whirlwind since that boat ride. Yeah. Well, it, I would argue it started before the boat, but let's just go back to the, let's do that. 1990, I'm living in Taiwan. And at the time I, I was dating a, a woman there and we went from Taiwan to California because my sister Roberta got married and we went to her wedding. And then on the way back to Taiwan, uh, we decided that we wanted to stop in Tahiti, in Bora Bora, in fact. So uh, we, that was the plan. To, so we got, saw my sister get married. We went to Bora Bora. We stayed at the Bora Bora Yacht Club. And we were supposed to be there for a week. Now, somehow, and this is true, and I'm not making this up because I'm still amazed myself how this kind of happened. Before going to Bora Bora, in my mind, I, I somehow I had this vision of I want to go to the South. I want to sail around the South Pacific. I want to explore the South Pacific, but I don't want to be a tourist and I don't want to pay for it because it'd be really expensive, I think. Um, but I want to do that. I want to go from island to island uh, with a purpose. Again, the whole idea of having a purpose. Like when I travel, I always I, my, my art kind of is my purpose because wherever I go, I draw and I paint. And so I have this. This, again, this backbone, it's not just traveling for the sake of travel, it's to create art and to learn about cultures and societies through drawing and painting. So that was my idea. I want to go to South Pacific. I had no plan or clue of how to make it happen. And I didn't think much about it, but I had that. In my head, there was an intention. And so here we are in Tahiti. And after being there for a couple of days, I remember seeing this funny looking boat on the horizon that sailed in. And it looked a bit like the African queen in that, uh, what was that movie with, Mar um, you know, the African queen, it's like, it was a, like a tugboat, not a tugboat, but anyway. Anyway, I see this boat and I, rec I make a note of it. Two days later, I'm on the jetty in the harbor at sunset and I'm painting the sunset. And I'm sitting there by myself. Uh, these two girls walk up and they start looking at my drawing and say, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm painting the sunset. I said, well, what are you guys doing? They said, and they pointed at that boat that I'd seen two days earlier. I said, oh, we live on that boat. I said, no kidding, I saw that boat, what do you do? Well, we're on the, this boat and we're sailing around the world making television documentaries. I said, no kidding, how'd you get that? <laughs> uh, they said, well, you know, and they were different, they had different stories. Like one girl got picked up in, in, um, in some island someplace and another girl was picked up somewhere else. As it turns out, this boat, which was called the Return of Marco Polo, had started in Denmark. So this organization in Denmark of teachers, in fact, had pooled their resources. Um, they were doing all sorts of things, and that's another whole story altogether, but they bought this Danish light ship. 
It was an 125-foot-long Danish lightship. Now, a lightship is a lightship. It has no motor. It's usually towed out to a sandbar, and there's a light on top of the boat. It blinks, to, so other vo boats avoid running aground on a, on, a, on a sandbar. So that's the job of a, of, a, of a lightship. This group took the boat, drilled a hole in it, put a 450 heavy Chevy engine in it and a <laughs> propeller and sailed it around the world. So I meet it, from, they'd gone from Denmark all the way around, I meet it in Bora Bora. And, and all along the way, there's a ten, crew, to, crew of 10 people, they're making de television documentaries. So their, their, their goal was to make uh, television documentaries about third world countries that would, and these programs would be broadcast in first world companies, countries, i.e. Europe over French Satellite 5, to to educate the first world about the third world. That was their mantra. mantra. So basically, you know, they, that's what they were doing. And I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. I, I'd been doing some television and radio in Taiwan. I thought I would love to do this. How could I, you know, so I sheepishly said, well, you know, how'd you, how could I possibly join you guys? And they said, well, why don't you come tomorrow for lunch and you'll meet the captain and we'll just see. So the next day they sent the Zodiac to pick me up and they took me to lunch. And a long story short, um, I talked with the captain, the crew, and they, they were heading from Tahiti to China. And it just so happens that, well, I speak Chinese, and, and they, they had nobody um, who could speak Chinese on the boat. So I think they saw this as, ah, we have our translator for our documentaries in China. Um, and, and also, I had television and radio, so you know, I was added value, and I was passionate about this. And so they said, sure, come along. Amazing. Uh, and, and so two days later, I waved goodbye to my, my girlfriend at the time on the, on the dock. She was, she was very, I have to give her a point. She, she let me go, if you will. She didn't pull, throw a tantrum and say, yeah, we're still supposed to be here another five, four or five days. What are you doing? So the good news is, I, I mean, not the good news, but I was able to leave on good terms, so to speak, and, and sailed away on the, the, the return of Marco Polo and spent the next month, nine months almost a year actually making television documentaries. So we sailed from Tahiti to uh, the uh, Cook Islands, which are uh, Penryn and Suvaro. So Penryn Island had 600 people on it. And they do we, we did films on diving for pearls, swimming with manta rays and stuff like that. Then we did to Suvaro Island. There were only six people who lived on Suvaro Island. And when the typhoon came through, they tied themselves to coconut trees. They had great stories. You know? uh, Tangi Jimmy was living there with his family. Anyway, that was Suvaro Island. And then we went from there to American Samoa, Western Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, New Zealand. And that took about nine months. It was a very slow boat. And we were, and we were making documentaries along the way. And so then I, from, from, from uh, Auckland, they put the, we put the boat up for some repairs. I flew back to Taiwan to get to close. I had still had a job there. I still had a home there. I just kind of shut that all down and rejoined the boat in Palau. So by that, from the time, anyway, they, they sailed from Sydney to Palau. I met them in Palau, rejoined the boat in Palau, and then sailed and made documentaries with them from Palau to um, Philippines, Taiwan, China, and then in China. So I spent about a year doing that, and it was really amazing. I mean, the, I would I would be sitting on the dot on the on the deck at night, maybe doing night watch in the middle of the ocean, you know, um, and just saying, God, you know, if I ever have grandkids, this is what I'll tell them about. You know, how do you how do you get to do that? And it totally was a manifestation of this that intention I had, which is I want to sail around the South Pacific with a, with a purpose. And boy, did I have purpose. I mean, I was 
making television documentaries. I was hosting, like, ah, here we are in Palau. Palau is near, in Micronesia, da, 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 da. Here we are in the Philippines at, Sto at Smoky Mountain in the Philippines. Have you heard of Sto Smoky Mountain? It's a, it's a giant garbage dump, and people live around Smoky Mountain, and they, they, they scavenge in the garbage dump to, make, to, to do recycle and sell that to make a living. You know, here we are, and here's the truck. It just dumped a bunch of garbage. Here are the people. Go, you know. So we made a, a, incredible programming. Uh, call, and the program was called The Return of Marco Polo. So I was, I was hosting it, but I was also writing it. I was editing it. I was scripting it. I was, you know, producing it. So it was, it was just thrown in at the deep end, you know, and this was with Betamax cameras. This is when cameras, you know, were the size of, of small cars. I mean, it was, uh, and then we had to smuggle them into China. I mean, it was, it was an incredible adventure. And all along I was painting as well. So I was, I had this dual life of doing documentaries and still painting and making art. So yeah, that was cool. It's, um, you know how they say in London, I'm like just gobsmacked, like freaking on a trip with your girlfriend from wherever to California. And you're like, well, in the middle of it, I'm, uh, I'm checking out and I'm, you know, well, you got to do what you got to do. You don't look that gift horse in the mouth, you know, you, yeah. And, yeah. and again, like I said, it, it was, she made it easy by, you know, didn't throw a tantrum or anything like yeah. that, which, you know, I, I, I give her high marks. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible demonstration of living life sort of by the seat of your pants and allowing it. Yeah, I would agree. And not to say, what did I have to lose? Because <laughs> my mother, bless her heart, when I got on this boat and told her where I was, she sent me this book that was the size of a life preserver. I think you could have used it as a life preserver. It was like, what to do if <laughs> stranded at sea? You know, it was like, I don't know how to, how to, urinate in a bottle and drink it. I don't know what, it, but it, I, I never read it, but, but it, you know, bless her heart. She sent me this book on how to survive a, if you're shipwrecked, you know, so, that's but it was cool. That was you, a really got, amazing. That's incredible. You got the book like on the go. Uh, those are, the, I would love to hear these stories about the documentaries you made and what that was like. And um, well, did the boat ever break stuff. down and like, were there oh, rough yeah, seas? All the time. <laughs> all the time i mean it was an 1807 danish light ship was never meant to sail around the world hello we put they, they put a they put a okay we had a motor and then you had to get the exhaust fumes out right so the motor we had to put this huge smokestack up in the middle of the boat and out and that would you know it was it was it was really like uh uh one of the, the three stooges sometimes i mean uh, the other thing i they don't they don't tell you in the mba program at harvard um I didn't know this at the time. The captain didn't, <laughs> he wasn't a captain. He never had a license. So he would be on the, they came from Denmark. Okay, Denmark, Danish, they have, they're sailors, I get that. But every night he'd be on the, on the shortwave radio to Denmark to a bunch of captains or people who knew boating and say, okay, we're here. What now? <laughs> Where do we go? And I didn't know this until way late in the game. So, you know, for me, when we'd be pulling into shore into a, into a, into a dock, yeah. you know, a wooden dock, and our, it was like the, the, the key, Keystone cops, you know, running around, throw this line, throw that jump here, watch out. And, and it really was, it was a comedy and action. And I didn't realize the reason was because we didn't have a captain. I mean, we had people who were, they were winging it too. They were really winging it. They were, they were flying, and we were flying by the seat of our pants. Yeah, we hit a few docks. We didn't bust anything major, but yeah, we. It was a funny. Kudos to that group of people. I mean, what, what, what? What you brought know, them together? Well, yeah, to, again, they, they were they, like they took action on some. They took action on a vision for real. 
Yeah, well, I would say there was a core group of Danes, uh, three or four of them that were the core, like the captain, the first mate, the engineer guy, and one other guy. There were four guys who were like the core team. And then as they sailed around the world, they picked up other people and dropped off other people. So by the time they came to me, that 10-person team had, already, had recycled a number of times already. And after I left, it, you know, it, kept, it kept recycling all the way around till it got back to Denmark. Did you have like a cook who was the main cook or did everyone cook? Well, everybody kind of cooked. It was a socialistic boat. Let's just put it that way. Everybody did everything. Yeah. Which, if, if you're a socialist, that makes sense. But to me, it's like, no, wait a minute. Morton was the engineer. Morton loved to get down in the engine room and clean things and fix things. I had no desire to do that at all. I wanted to do documentaries. I wanted to make films. So I would spend 12 hours in a shot in the editing room. But ask me to clean the toilets for 12 hours or fix the engine. No, I don't want to do that. So I was kind of this American with, with this, I don't say voice of reason, but well, wait a minute. Shouldn't we ask people to do what they really like to do? Because they'll excel in that, right? And then <laughs> don't ask people, because you know, someone else will want to do that. You know, anyway, we had a, we had some uh, Peruvian chefs. They were good chefs. It was uh, Eduardo and, Viota, and Sandra Viota, my dear friends. I mean, we became very close. And they were the cooks. And, and we had another cook. We had a British cook, too. So people cycled through as cooks. But That's I was never the cook. Just incredible. Nine months. on. A, did you get seasick? Because I get seasick. You know, I do. But I didn't, somehow. I, you know, I never got seasick on that whole voyage. It was more like a year, because it was nine months and then three months. So it was about a year in total. And um, yeah, no, I never got seasick. And we had rough seas. I'm going through the roaring 40s from, from uh Tonga, Fiji, Fiji to New Zealand. That took nine days, and the seas were just. That's I mean, a really was, rough. Uh, I did you ever think we're not going to make it? Fortunately, you know, we were we had good weather. We had really really rough seas, but we didn't. We we, we we at that for those nine days, it wasn't like the Titanic with the winds and the rain and the storms. You know, it was rough, but it. I think the more disheartening is when you're in those rough season, it's raining and you're, you know, you're holding onto the deck, not wanting to get washed off and, you know, strapped down and all that kind of stuff. It, we didn't have those conditions at that okay. time. We had those at other times, but the nine days for was, I don't want to say gentle sailing because it wasn't gentle at all, but it was, it, it didn't become disheartening. Wow. Wow. Well, did you guys film yourselves making the documentary, like a documentary of a documentary? Somewhat, yeah, but we were, it was more about, you know, you had, we, made, we made a 30 minute, actually basically 27 minute program once a week. Um, and it was, you know, it really was Rambo. You know, you'd land on the beach somewhere and, you know, <laughs> find people. And prior to that, we were like in the, in the, in the backpacker guide to Tonga. What do they do in Tonga? Okay, they, 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 they grow taro. Okay, they dive for pearl. Okay, they, they do, you know okay, let's meet some people. Let's go to the market. Let's see. Let's interview people who are working in the market. And, you know, it, it was basically, how do people make a living? It was very simple. It was but early day had, reality. Exactly. And, and it was very real. And, you know, it was, what's your name? My tongue, you know, Tommy That's Jimmy. What do you do? That is wild. Well, so, all right. So um, before we go, we got to get into the completion of this amazing journey on this uh, boat, the return of Marco Polo. And then, you did Olympics, and then the way I know you most recently is you're a resident artist in resident, which is sort of like something you have just pioneered to a degree, and it's incredible. 
Um, so maybe we could touch on the end of this Marco Polo and into that. Okay, so to wrap that one up, so Marco Polo, I left the boat in Hong Kong and started living in Hong Kong. And that was 1991 and then 92. So I lived in Hong Kong from 92 to 95, or 90, 91 to 95. Then from, I moved to Singapore and I've lived in Singapore ever since. Um, in Singapore in 1999, we had a, we were, my, my well, girlfriend at the time, Angie, but now my wife, uh, we were living in, in East Coast of Singapore and we had a neighbor who was an events manager, had, had an events management company. And he was doing the grand opening for the Oberoi Resort in Lombok, which is the island next to Bali. And so the Oberoi is a you know, five-star resort and he was doing the grand opening. And he said to us, he said, you know, we need you to come and be the artist in residence at the Oberoi. And I said, sure, that's cool. What's that? You know, uh, I had no idea. And he said, well, I don't really know either. We'll kind of, let's just figure it out. So long story short is he talked to the general manager, a guy, lovely guy, Joe Polito, guy from New York. He's been in Asia decades and a classic, a great, great hotelier. He was the GM and, and we pitched the idea and he said, sure, come on down. So Angie and I moved there for six weeks. We lived in a bungalow, beautiful bungalow. And, and I had a studio and I painted a series of paintings. And then after a month or so, we had an exhibition and we invited guests and, you know, we had cocktail receptions, meet the artist and stuff like that. And, you know, it was a win-win. We sold some paintings. I did some lectures. Uh, what's not to like? Um, so that was our first well, actually, that was my second. I'm sorry. I told you about the first one was on that on the on the beach in, in St. Croix. But this is the first one, you know, I would yeah. say real, real time. Um, and, and so that was the first one. And then I, I, I said to Joe, Joe, can you write me a letter of recommendation? He said, sure. So he, he gave me a letter, said, this is the greatest thing that's since sliced bread. And so I, you know, I found another GM. And I said, hey, we'd like to be your artist in residence. They said, what does that mean? I said, well, this is what we do. And okay. Yeah. So that was 20 years ago. And now we've done over 40 of them around the world um, for anywhere from two to six weeks. Uh, we've done Oberoi's. We've done. Um, These are five uh, star Banyan, hotels. Yeah. So Banyan Tree, Shangri-La, Angsana, Anantara, Oberoi, uh, uh, Amila, Alila, uh, One and Only, uh, Riti Ra and the Maldives. We've done the Maldives 10 times. Um, so, you know, we get to do stuff that, I would argue that um, you know multi-million or billionaires get to do, um, and and it's my job, sort of. I mean, it's my work, but it's my passion. So I go and I paint. Angie does; she takes photos and documents everything, and then she puts up the exhibition. She you know she runs the studio, if you will. I teach art to stu to interested guests. Um, so it's you know it's a win-win. I I get to, we get to go to an incredible place. Uh, and live and paint and scuba dive and hike and do whatever is in the area, live a big life. And, and I won't say, I don't want to say influence people, but um, yeah, we are kind of influencers in that. I mean, we, we meet, we've met so many great people through the years doing this and we're still in touch with them. So we, you know, we, we met people 10 years ago on a, you know, I, I've, I've also done um, on, on seaborne cruises back in the day when you could cruise, you know, we, yeah. I've done a dozen of those um, sailing in, on Seabourn as a, as a lecturer or the art teacher. Um, and I've met wonderful people and it really, it, we've just done, this has been our life for 20 years. Uh, I'm very grateful and very, very blessed. And again, that just happened because somebody said, you should be the artist in residence at the Oberoi. And we said, sure, That's, well, uh, we'll, I, figure I was, out, we'll figure it out. 
It's, I way. was with you in the Maldives when you did it, and it was. That's right. Uh, That's right. Was that great or what? That you was know? incredible. We ate. Yeah. There was like three restaurants on the island. You did an art show. You were you were busy giving classes during the day. We were scuba diving. Uh, I mean, we were in the Maldives, the most beautiful place in the world. And you're staying there for free. It wasn't exactly free for me. <laughs> when I got, yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember when you got the bill. I like, yeah, yeah. I was like, uh, I thought there was a, I thought there was a discount, but uh, yeah. that's another story. But I mean, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's unbelievable your travels. You wrote a book called The Painted Journey, and like, that book's what ten years old now. And in that book, you've been, you went to like how many countries? That's a book about your yeah. journeys. Yeah, I call it ten expeditions and exhibitions. So. Uh, Angie and I have been to the what what were you know Laos, Cambodia, Burma, China, Nepal, Singapore, Hawaii, Europe, uh, India, and another I forget there are ten of them and so it's ten chapters it's two hundred pages yeah it was a it's a collector's item it's we only printed three thousand copies um, yeah, it's a beautiful book and and that, so I, we have to do painted journey too I think at some point yeah um, we've got a lot of that was, yeah we published that in two oh five so we had you know a lot of material by 205 and we just haven't stopped since until COVID we hadn't yeah. slowed down. Like last year was a banner year. We went to about 25 places um, through, through, through residencies and through the sailings and stuff like that. So it was, are you going to, yeah. are you going to lay low with this whole COVID thing till the end of the year or is there a residency coming up where you're going to be at a hotel teaching I'm, art? I'm artists and residents in our home. Yeah, no, we're going nowhere. <laughs> in uh, Badoa. You know, honestly, um, I'm, we were supposed to right now we we're supposed to be in Machu Picchu in Peru. Um, a friend of ours is opening a, a resort there, eco resort there. We were going there for the opening, which was this week. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to this, I was going to be in Tokyo for the Paralymp Olympic and Paralympic. I was going to have a painting exhibition in Tokyo. Um, that didn't happen, obviously. I had a painting exhibition in Taiwan. I, that didn't happen. I mean, the exhibition happened, but I didn't go. Tokyo, of course, got canceled or postponed another year. We had a big calendar this year, and none of it's going to happen. And I would say, I'm, you know, I'm saddened that it's not. And at the same time, I'm grateful that it's not. Because Angie and I, you know, for lack of better, forced, if you will, or uh, encouraged to sit, to lay low, and to do all those things that we haven't been doing for the last 20 years, because we've been so busy running around collecting fodder. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I, I think you live a big life, you run around, you eat a lot of experiences. And then if you just eat, you get fat. If you don't exercise, if you don't use it to do something, so what's the point? You just, you're like a tourist, right? So, so our goal and, or our mission, if you will, is to, to not regurgitate it, but to, to share it in some format, whether it's through talks or through paintings or through books or through blogs or through Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is we do, um, to, to make something of it. So we've been making stuffing of it since we've been laying low. So I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm grateful for having my feet nailed to the floor for a while. And I'm, I'm optimistic that this is not going to be forever. I know the sky is falling. I know people have been affected hugely. Uh, I have had a, a friend of mine, a Paralympian athlete, a good buddy. He was a three-time uh, medley relay gold medalist with me um, uh, in, in three Paralympics. He died. Oh, a strong swimmer. Wow. My age, um, he passed away from, we believe, COVID. 
wow. uh, in America. So, wow. you know, I've been touched. Uh, I, nobody gets out of this scotch-free for sure. But other than that, and some, you know, I, I'm very fortunate. You know, we're not totally impacted by it. And so we were able to see, to see the sunny side. And I get it. I get a, a lot of people don't have that luxury. Yeah. A lot of people have been really whacked. And I, I'm not trying to be the energizer bunny, and, but I, I just keep saying we're trying to make lemonade out of lemons. Mm. And I've been drinking a lot of lemonade. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful for this, this wrinkle in time. You know, it yeah. was you know, being in Singapore where it's pretty safe, but you know, we got locked down and you know, you couldn't go out and do stuff and now we can. And for how long that's going to last, we'll see, you know, hopefully this is, you know, we're, we stay this course, but uh, so yeah, it's, this too will pass. And yeah. Um, you know, yeah. We'll, I mean, we'll but there's are, there's a lot of, I mean, even me, I have businesses that I don't know, you know, you're, they're, they're right in the line of fire of people that need to be together. You know, I'm sort of a landlord and stuff and other well, things, but you know, I, I was supposed, I had an incredible, uh, uh, workshop, uh, keynote presentation in, um, China in Xiamen and, uh, which I was negotiating as COVID was, I, I finalized it literally <laughs> the day I finalized it, got the go ahead, got the green light almost the day that COVID really hit the fan in oh. January. Uh, and wow. I was supposed to do this talk in February and, and, and the, the woman bless her heart. She's like, you know, I know we agreed on this, but, uh, you know, we have a bunch of staff members that have just gone home for Chinese New Year. Uh, they just went back to Wuhan. And, you know, we, we, we think they're going to be okay. But why don't we just hold KIV this for a little bit until we see how things work out. And uh, Wuhan. You know, Wuhan. Like, let's go. Like a, <laughs> that's, uh, wow, that, of, all the, of all the places, that's not exactly going to help my, uh, my chances of getting to China. No, so yeah. as you can imagine, that never happened and so uh, yeah we're we've lost business for sure yeah um, but i would say you know we're, we're still putting in the time to do new things and, and working you know doing uh, keynotes and workshops online now i mean what we're doing right now i mean yeah. this is perfect for us but we are yeah. we're all about content and well, zoom is a great content provider and we can show videos we can show slides i can talk if you want to listen to me you know it's just, what's what's not to like so well, you have a huge business. You could be easily online, a huge teacher of paint, painting. Yeah. yeah. So actually, I've, I don't know if you know, Airbnb is offering experiences now. I mean, they've been doing it for a while. So, you know, you can you go through it. You go to Airbnb and you go to experiences and, you know, you, you want to go for a, a, a dance lesson in Barcelona or you want to get a tour of Moscow or anyway, they've got different people offering different experiences, if you will. And so they've recently opened that up big time to Olympians and Paralympians. So there's a whole genre now of Olympians and Paralympians offering courses online or wow. you know experiences online. So now I'm one of those. You know, I'm offering drawing online. That's you know, through, wow. through Airbnb. That's yeah. That's awesome. So, um, well, uh, the best way to read tell everyone where they can find you, yep. what your website is, and all that. Yeah www.gregoryburns.com g-r-e-g-o-r-y-b-u-r-n-s.com no punctuation just one one word gregoryburns.com um yeah that's the best way to find me the website is it's thorough there's plenty of art there there's plenty of speaking there there's plenty of videos there um and i have a vimeo channel as well with a lot of videos uh so you know reach out i'm 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 i always i always respond if it's not spam i respond Okay, so 
That's like great. That. And you are, fan, do you have a Facebook page other than your I personal do. page? Uh, it's Gregory Burns Art. And it's the same as my Instagram, Gregory Burns Art, one word, G-R-E-G-O-R-Y-B-U-R-N-S-A-R-T. Okay. Um, so yeah, Instagram and um, yeah, that's another thing. Interestingly, you know, I've been I've been playing with I've been painting for fifty years, but I started using a, an iPad to use di do digital art in the last couple of years, which has been great because I haven't been able to go to the studio during COVID. So I've been home, you know, in my bedroom using my iPad, not getting paint on the covers uh, <laughs> on the walls. <clears throat> but that's been really fun, and I've been I've been playing with the digital art now. So that's my new frontier, so to speak. But you know, trying to co coordinate that or connect that with the, with That's the painting cool. as well you're you're moving forward with the ai just don't go too far don't sell your soul well no so. in, in all in all honesty i have a very good friend uh jenny krasner in new york has a does great work and she's been doing digital a long time and so i've been doing it for a couple of years and i'm like a babe in the woods and and i said hey what do you think of myself and bless her heart you know from new york <laughs> tell it like it is she said you got too good at this. It's too easy. You know, you, you there's no, I don't see your hand anymore. And touche. That's, that's the thing. Digital art. There's, I mean, yeah, you can fake it. And, but you know, I will never stop painting because to me, it's almost like that universal consciousness I talked about when speaking or painting, where when I paint with a brush, with paint, you know, throwing splatter against the wall, against the canvas, you know, there's something that happens in that process that is magical, which is, uh, connecting with with something else, and I don't I don't get as much with the iPad because you're doing this. Oh yeah, you know, it's, it's a well, small thing. Whereas when I'm painting and it's an eight by eight foot painting, you know, my I'm in the painting. I'm I'm dancing. I'm moving. I'm using my whole body to blah. So there's a whole difference there. Yeah, it's very physical watching you paint. And so again, um, you can see Greg on Vimeo, Gregory Burns, and GregoryBurns.com. No period, just GregoryBurns.com. There's tons of art. Your gallery's there. I have all your paintings. Not all, but I have the best one, the Buddha, the roadside you idol. You've got a good collection. When I, when I, you know, when, it, when, I, when I say when I leave the planet, your, your collection just doubled in value. So. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, yeah, could you hurry? Could we speed that up there? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Thanks, buddy. I'll yes. see what I can do. But. Yeah, so uh, you really should check out Greg because he's quite an inspiration. And I mean, I'm really, it's been great knowing you for what, 25 years? And uh, that long. We'll yeah. talk again. We have so much to, there's, we could do stuff. But I think there's people in my group that may want to interview you too. So you could, we could spread the word that way. So you never know. Happy to. So, Happy to. Without ado, we're going to say goodbye. Greg, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again soon. Will do. Thank you, Stephen. Take care, and uh, be well. Stay well. All the best. Thanks for interviewing me. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah.